We turn now for our reading to the book of Revelation and the 12th chapter. Let us hear God's holy word. Let us hear the word of God together, the Lord giving us an understanding, praying for his spirit's help and grace. The Lord give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his word this night. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. There appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God, to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, ye that dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. When the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. To the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times and half a time, from the face of the serpent. The serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony 
of Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless that public reading of his precious, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. All to the glory of his name and to the good of our needful and never-dying souls here this night. Well, dear friends, dear congregation, I ask you now to please turn your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you earlier in your hearing. The book of Revelation, chapter 12. We arrive this evening in this chapter, which begins a new cycle. You'll notice uh, I've given some of you sheets. I don't want you to be taken up reading those sheets this evening, but I'll just uh, speak about it for a moment. You'll notice as we begin the fourth cycle here, it covers chapters 12 and chapter to chapter 14. And those perhaps listening online, I've also uploaded it as a PDF document so that you may be able to download that there as well. And uh, I trust that that will be a real help. You'll notice that every cycle there ends with uh, Christ's people in heaven. And there is the scripture chapter verse given where God's people at the end of each cycle are in heaven and give glory to God. These things are paramount to our understanding. So as we come this evening and uh, thinking now at the beginning of the fourth cycle and once again seeking the Lord's gracious help, last chapter, remember, we concluded the third cycle and it ended there in verses 11 to 13 with the second coming of Christ and the general resurrection of all men. Let me just take you there very quickly. Revelation 11, verse 11. And after three days and a half, and remember we said that that number, three and a half days, or three and a half years, these years of days, also are equated to that period of 1260 days or 42 months. And we see that again appear in this chapter. It's the end of the gospel age. The spirit of life from God entered into them, that is God's people, and they stood upon their feet. They were dead. And great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard the great voice, a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And then you come to the verse 18 at the end, midway there. Thy wrath is come, it says, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And thou shouldest give reward unto the ser- thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. That's the end, really of the third cycle. We see God's people taken up into heaven, praising God. The tabernacle is opened up and the glory of God is seen. And of course, the world is in great fear because they see the ark and lightnings and flashing, signifying a picture, surely, of Mount Sinai when the people quaked at the coming of God and the law was given. It's a sign of judgment. So we concluded last week the end of the third cycle. 
Now again, the cycles, they're all as shown there in the sheet, showing the various aspects that take place in this world during the entire Gospel Age. The Gospel Age is that time, as we said, from the time of Christ's ascension up until his second and final coming. That's the Gospel Age. Peter refers to it as, in 1 Peter 1.20, these last times. My friends, we're living in the last times. We do not know the day, the hour of Christ's coming. It could come at any time. No one knows that hour, says the Lord Jesus. Don't try to figure it out. We're not here in the business of prophecy mongering. Remember what the Lord said to those in Acts chapter 1, as they stood gazing up into heaven, seeing the Lord being taken up. The Holy One said, Why stand ye here, men? The same Jesus shall come in like manner. Yes, upon the clouds of heaven. And we don't know when that's going to be. Just as he was taken up suddenly, he will come again suddenly. And so where is he now? He is in heaven. He, as we sang there from the Psalm 110 in the verses uh, that follow there, particularly in verses 1 to 2 there, he is risen on high. He is sat at the right hand of the majesty of the Father. He is the risen prophet, priest, and king. As priest, he ever lives to intercede for us. As king, he reigns. But he also reigns in the hearts of those that he has saved, quickened by his spirit. And as prophet, he is now our teacher. We are taught by God, aren't we? Christ is God, and we have been taught by Christ. And soon he will come to judge all the men of the earth. Now, the church, as we've seen before, is the elect. The 144,000, the circumcised in heart. And uh, we'll see some other aspect here tonight of the church called the bride, or the true Israel of God. This is the church. Those circumcised in the heart by the new birth. Also referred to, remember we've seen it before, and uh, it's all there in the charts that I've given you. I trust that will be helpful. The church is also described as the 20 and 4 elders, the 144,000, those whose garments were made white in the blood of the Lamb, and who are from every kindred, tribe, tongue, a nation of this world, Revelation 7 and the verse 9. Now, uh, here, as I said, we're now beginning the fourth cycle. And what we find in this fourth cycle is things really in the unseen world. I suppose up until now, we have seen calamities in the world. The trumpets, the seals, the events taking place. All of these things, of course, happening at the same time. This is what we call symbolic parallelism. These truths taking place, these cycles all taking place parallel with each other throughout the gospel age. And now, as I said, in the fourth cycle. And really, we could put here the theme, as you'll see there, the enemies of Christ and his bride. Well, really, we can't see Satan, can we? We're told he's a spirit. And uh, there is a spiritual warfare. As Paul said this in Ephesians 6, as he said, our warfare is spiritual. There are powers of darkness that we cannot see. And therefore, we need to put on the whole armor of God. 
And part of that is the Word. We need to be armored, don't we, with the Word of God. And what we see in this chapter is Satan is wroth or wrathful with those precisely who love God and keep his commandments. Look at verse 17 of Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now notice, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, who are they that keep the commandments of God? It's precisely those of the promise of Jeremiah 31, isn't it? Chapter 31, verse 33. Those people in the new covenant who have God's laws written upon their hearts and who love to keep God's commandments. These are, remember what we saw in the last chapter? Those in the inner court who have a circumcised heart. Circumcision of the heart. What did the Lord say? As he circumcises the heart, also in Ezekiel, but in Jeremiah 31, 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After these, those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Of course, that's upon a new heart. And will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. Well, the Lord says he will be their God. These people that he has circumcised in the heart and put his laws in their hearts. By nature, the law of God, Romans 2, 14 and 15, is written upon hearts of stone. People do have the law written upon the very fabric of their conscience. They know right and wrong. But when we're born again, God gives us a new heart and puts his law upon our hearts. And Satan hates that because what is being established in the new man is likeness to God. The law is the reflection of the moral essence and the character of God, isn't it? The law reflects who God is. And Satan hates it when he sees his people, that's Christ's people, God-like. We're told, aren't we, in 1 John 3, that we shall be one day perfectly glorified and we shall be like God. And much more will be hated then, that Christ will be with us and Satan will never harm us when we're with Christ. Well, here in this chapter, what we will see is three figures. We will see a woman. We'll see uh, certainly the dragon. And uh, indeed, this man-child. And we'll identify them with the Lord's help this evening, even from this chapter, I trust. But remember, as Paul said, again, now as we come to this fourth cycle, really what we're entering to in the We could say some have divided the book of the Revelation actually into two, although there are seven cycles. From henceforth, what we see are battles in the unseen world. That could be said. William Hendrickson and uh, Herman Huxma certainly see this, and uh, Mr. Ramsey. And uh, it's true. 
I believe we will see here things in the unseen world. We've seen things happen on earth, things that we can identify with, and of course some things we'll be able to see here. But by and large, the majority of what takes place here is in the unseen world. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan is a real enemy. He is the arch enemy of the church. He always has been. A most high angel wasn't satisfied with his first estate. And he, along with a third part of the angels, have fallen from their first estate. They lost that estate and are now reserved in darkness. Satan still has power, and, uh, but it's limited. He can do great damage, as we've read here. He is full of wrath because we're told here that his time is short. Well, here we see a great warfare. It's presented to us, look at the verse 1 through 3 with me. We'll just read those and then we'll come and identify some of the characters this evening. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. And as we come to this verse, let me say, let us just acknowledge in our minds, in chapter 11, judgment is passed. The saints are in heaven. So we have to really begin a new cycle. I trust you see that. It's not another judgment day. But God is giving us visions. John here sees a vision. We're told here, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven. John sees something. He is given a glimpse of things yet to come. And some things have already taken place at this particular point. There are some things that have taken place. And things continue to happen, as we will see. There has always been a warfare ever since Satan was cast out of heaven. But notice there with me, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. This is what John sees in the vision. And the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. So we have here a woman in this vision. We, we, first of all, we need to identify really who she is. Well, we're told here that she is with child. She is travailing, seeking to bring forth this child. But the dragon is there waiting right away. As soon as she gives birth, he wants to devour the child of the woman. Now we know who certainly notice this is. This is the church. Because if you notice in verse 6, and particularly from our earlier studies, the number 1260 days is what? It's the gospel age where the church is persecuted. And so after the man-child is devoured, she is persecuted during that entire gospel age, verse 6, after the dragon devours the man-child that we'll see, she fled into the wilderness, notice verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God 
that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. That's twelve hundred and sixty days. And of course, we remember that's forty two months or the three and a half years. It's the same way, but it's a different way of saying the same thing. So we know this is the church, and we'll see that as the chapter unfolds. Now, this is a glorious woman. Have a look there with me. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. She's radiant, altogether radiant. But how can this be? I suppose when we look at the church today, it doesn't look like much. But when God looks at the church, what is the church clothed with? Christ's righteousness. Are we not told in Malachi 4.2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise. And then in Matthew 13.43, we read there, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun. Now think of it. That's going to be in the day of glory. But right now, all of God's people are clothed in the righteousness of God. Our sin has been dealt with. Do you remember, it was Joshua the high priest in the book of Zechariah, clothed with filthy garments. And the Lord said to Satan, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, was standing before Joshua the high priest, accusing and rebuking. And the Lord said, take away from him his filthy garments. And in that same chapter, he says, I will remove the filth, the stain. And that's the stain of God's people in one day. God's people, their sin has been dealt with in Christ. And the church is glorious. When you read the Song of Solomon, and uh, the Lord looks at his bride, the church, he says she is altogether beautiful and glorious. Why? Because he sees us through the finished work of Christ. Of course, God does see our sin, but God sees the end result, ultimately, doesn't he? Our sin does grieve him, but it's what the church shall be. When you get to the book, end of the book of the Revelation, we see the glorious church adorned, a beautiful bride for her husband, the Lord, coming down from heaven in the new heaven and the new earth. Matthew 13, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun. We read here also that she has the moon under her feet. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Well, this is, of course, we must remember, this is all symbolic language. We're dealing with symbolism here. The woman here has the moon under her feet, something under one's foot. We know this. The Lord shall put all of his enemies underneath his feet. Under the feet represents dominion, doesn't it? Power, dominion. Now think of it, in the earlier chapter, when the church was persecuted, what did God do? He gave power to the church to even turn the rivers to blood, just as in the days of Moses, and gave power, just as in the days of Elijah, to shut the heavens that it would not rain. And of course we know the moon has power, doesn't it? The tides come and go. 
It's, it's just symbolic language of saying that the church has power. The moon is even subject because as she prays, God hears the prayers of his people. And God will move the earth. What did God do in Isaiah? He even moved the sun back in the dial. So many degrees, didn't he, for Hezekiah. For the Lord will move for his people. The church has power, dominion. Why? Because of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Well, notice something else. She has a crown of 12 stars on her head. 12, we know, is symbolic of the church. We've seen it. There were 12 apostles, weren't there? 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is symbolic of the church. It's representative of the church. We said 12 tribes, 12 apostles. When you look at the city, how many gates? 12 gates. It all speaks of the church. And uh, she's crowned. The church is crowned here. The church is glorious in God's eyes. Altogether glorious in the sight of God. May not look that way to the, to the world. In fact, as we'll see, Satan is a very hideous figure in this chapter. But actually, he appears very attractive to this world. That's really how it is. But the church, see how glorious she is. But the world sees her as ugly. They think the church is detestable. Look at these pathetic people. Look at Christians. Not much to look at. And so here is the wonder in heaven, this woman clothed with a sun and the moon under her feet, power, dominion, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now notice, and she being with child, she being with child, cried, travailing in birth. The picture is she's ready to give birth and pained to be delivered. Well, the question is, who is this child? We need to really identify who this child is. Well, we don't need to go very far. Look at the verse 5. We know it's Christ because it says she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. You notice that? And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. This is unmistakably the Lord Jesus Christ. If you just turn with me to Psalm 2 and the verse 9. I'll actually read from the verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. This is the father speaking to the son, and he says to the son in verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord saith unto me, Thou art my son. We notice the capital S there, addressing the son of God. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Now notice, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. And we're told here that the child that was to rule was to rule with a rod of iron. But what's happened? Well, the Jews thought he was going to be an earthly king, didn't they? They were greatly mistaken. Uh, well, they were crying one minute, as he is entering into Jerusalem, Hosanna to the king. And then a few days later, 
crucify him. Suddenly he's taken up to heaven. Many were expecting the great Messiah that healed many, did many things to be made king. But he wouldn't be. It's quite bizarre. Only 120 people really in that upper room. Praying up till the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, Peter had to get in the face of the Jews and say, you put him to death. But it was that same Lord Jesus that will dash the nations with a rod of iron. Well, the Lord Jesus, if you just go back to Revelation 2 verse 27, he says this exactly about himself. I want you to notice. The Lord is introducing himself here to the churches. Revelation 2.27 And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father, I will give him the morning star. And so on. This is Christ. He's introducing himself. He is saying, I am the man-child. This man-child was taken up suddenly. Well, They thought he was going to rule. But yes, his kingdom is not of this world, is it? He is in heaven, he's reigning. But one day he's going to judge all men. He does reign, but it's not an earthly kingdom. Well, it's obvious. Who else could dash the nations? Who else could rule the nations but the Son of God? It's obvious that this man-child is Christ in the verse 3, and also there in the verse 5. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, you notice, I want to think here, how is it that the woman brought forth the man-child? What way? It's a good question to ask. Did the woman bring forth the man-child? And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, Pain to be delivered. Well, think of it. Right back in the Garden of Eden, God promised the Messiah, didn't he? Genesis 3.15. Yes, the promise was there. But right through the Old Testament, and by the way, the church always existed. Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Stephen says, this is he, speaking about Moses, who was in the church in the wilderness. And Christ was longed for in the Old Testament. David looked to the Lord who was to come and to sit upon his throne. How did Christ come from the church? Well, he would come from the line of David, wouldn't he? From that line, from he would be a greater than Solomon. The prophets spoke of him, didn't they? Well, the church down through the millennia, have been in great pains to see the Savior coming into the world. So here is the woman that brings forth, indeed, the man-child that is Christ. We know from Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, made under the law. Now, Mary, uh, she was a virgin. And uh, she was to be that instrument whereby Christ would be born into this world. They had not yet consummated their marriage, 
And uh, she didn't remain a virgin. We know this. The Catholics deny this. Rome denies this even today. In Mark 6, verse 1, we read, And he went out from thence and came unto his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? And then we read this, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Well, of course, Mary, before she had other children, well, she was a virgin. We know from Isaiah 7, verse 14, and the virgin shall be with child. She was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but she didn't remain a virgin because we read there that the, the Lord Jesus had brothers and sisters. James, Joseph, and Judah, and Simon are not his sisters here with us. Now, Mary was a sinner. Rome denied this, and as we'll see in the up-and-coming chapters, and you'll see in your chart there, we believe very clearly, and even our confession states it, that there is a harlot, and there is a false church. And Rome claims that Mary was sinless, and that really she is the mother of God. It's the title they give her. And, uh, but Mary herself being a sinner, she needed the Savior. Luke one forty seven, she said, And my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. And that's very important. Satan will try to deceive and make out as if Mary is a co-redeemer, but she's not. Well, the church brought forth, we know Mary was used in an instrumental way, but it was the church, really, that brought forth. In what way? Well, all the saints in the church were longing. It's interesting, if you were to read uh, the Gospel of Matthew and, and, and trace the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, and also in Luke, that actually the line to the coming of the Lord Jesus is done on the Father's side. It's actually done on Joseph's side, not Mary's side. And uh, I know this offends many, but, it, but it's true. If you look at Matthew 1.16, we're told, and Jacob begat Joseph. It begins really with the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. And you go right through, and then you come right down to the verse 16, and it says, and Jacob begat Joseph. And then we read, so the, the lineage here is through Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, so conceived by the Spirit in Mary's womb. And so you have all the generations, you notice in the verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David until carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from carrying away into Babylon unto Christ, 14 generations. Isn't that interesting? What beautiful symmetry there. 14, 14, 14. And then what is equally as interesting 
and encouraging is if you come to Luke chapter 3. Again, it's Joseph that is traced all the way back to Adam. It's interesting. Luke, Luke Luke 3 verse 23 speaks of Joseph there. Luke 3.23, and then you come down to Luke 3.38. Speaking here of Adam, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which is the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So you can trace Joseph all the way to Adam. Says there, Luke 3.23. Somebody looks confused. I hope you're not confused. It's It's wonderful. So this is the church. Ever since Adam, the promise was given to Adam and Eve that the Christ would come. And then Joseph, he chooses a wife, but he didn't know. He didn't know at all. And the Holy Spirit so worked in Mary's womb. She was a godly woman. He was a godly man. We're told that he was a just man. He wandered in his mind. Should I put her away? And then God came and spoke to him and said, no. And so the church really, and all of them, in this way, if you look at that line, you study Matthew chapter 1 and you study Luke chapter 3, you'll see that everyone there represented are a godly seed. These were they of faith. They were longing. And Time and time again, ever since that promise in Genesis 3.15, the dragon's been waiting. And remember when he was born, how Herod, being an instrument of Satan, tried to kill the man-child ever since he was born. Remember how his parents had to flee, and even up through his life, and then finally. And so the dragon... We come now to the dragon. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, verse 3. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Red, of course, we know, represents bloodshed, doesn't it? It represents terror and horror. Well, we don't know, don't need to look very far, do we, to identify, identify who this is. Have a look at verse 9. And the great dragon was cast down, that old serpent called the devil, And Satan, two names there. He's got other names, Beelzebub and so on, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Well, it's not a mystery here, is it? It's definitely Satan, red, the color color of blood and destruction. Well, this is how he's really painted. It says they're also having seven heads, and ten horns. Well, we thought last week of the tenth part that was taken away from man. Power. Ten represents something given by God, doesn't it? He's given us ten fingers, ten toes. He's given us the ten commandments. He's told us to give, us, give him our tithes. Represents something given. Even our money is given from God, so therefore we give the tithe to God. That's the lesson behind that. Ten given of God. And then horns. We, we know, we've seen time and time again, I'm sure you're sick ad nauseum of me telling you, that horns represent power all through the Scripture. The horn of salvation and so on. But seven heads, 
People get rather worried here when they see seven heads and seven crowns. Of course, you've got to have seven heads for seven crowns. People get very concerned. Well, these represent victory. Well, Satan either claims to be very victorious, or certainly that's how he appears to men. And I suppose the world might think, well, look at the church now. Where's the church now, they say? Looks rather defeated. Satan looks like he's won the day. Look at the Lord Jesus on the cross. He's not defeated. Just when Satan thought he had won everything, Christ said it's finished. And the man-child was taken up to his throne. One minute, the people are crying, Hosanna to the king. And the next minute, the one that they wanted for an earthly king, he's crucified. Taken up into glory. Well, Satan, having seven heads and ten horns, remember the power that he's given is given by God. That's what is being transmitted here. That is what is being portrayed, having seven heads and the seven crowns upon his heads. Apparent victory. It might seem that the church is defeated, but it's not. Christ said, even the gates of hell shall not prevail. I will build my church. Satan has power given. Herman Huxma says, this number indicates that the power of the devil is limited by the sovereign decree of God Almighty. And that the devil can do no more or no less than that which God has decreed for him. Remember what the Lord said to Job, or rather to Satan about Job. What did he say? Behold, all that he has is in thy power. But don't touch him. Don't take his light. You can't. He was limited. Well, the crowns. Again, they symbolize victory, but Satan is a deceiver, isn't he? And he might appear to many to be victorious, but he's not. He's soon going to be cast into the lake of fire, as we know from the book of the Revelation. Something else about Satan. Notice the verse 4. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Well, What is this all about? If you just look down to the verse 9, we get more of an idea there. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast into the earth and his angels cast out with him. So that gives us further explanation. The stars, remember from the star can mean an angel or a messenger, These were originally good angels, but they fell. And there's no hope for them. A third, we're told, fell. Jude even reminds us in the book of Jude. Well, these angels, they were deceived by him, and they were seduced by him. And it says here, his tail drew. That is, he he took with him others. He managed to, as it were, Get them out. How? We don't know. But, well, they're evil. They rebelled against God in heaven. And uh, he's the old devil, we're told here. 
he that deceives the whole world. You see, Satan is so filled with pride. He always was filled with pride. If you just turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14, you'll see there how the Father, God is addressing Satan in Isaiah 14. Have a look there. And this really is a warning. Isaiah 14 verse 9, Hell from beneath is moved for thee, to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It had raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Now notice, all they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy voils, the worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now notice, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. And then we read, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble and that did shake the nations. One day, the whole world is going to behold Satan and he will be reduced to nothing. He will be cast down. You see, as we read there in Isaiah 14, Satan always wanted to be equal or above God. I shall be as the Most High. I shall ascend. I will be admired amongst the congregation. He wanted to be worshipped. Remember when the Lord Jesus, there we were thinking Lord's Day evening in Luke 4, was tempted in the wilderness. How Satan, what did he say? Bow down to me, and I will give you all the nations. But Christ didn't, did he? He refused. Yes. Let me say this. Ever since it was announced there in Genesis 3.15, there has been a war. Old Testament, and even when Christ came. And there are those of the devil. Remember what the Lord Jesus said of the Jews? In John 8.44, he said, You're of your father, the devil. Um, you can even look back in the Old Testament. We know of Queen Athaliah. I'm sure you've read of her in 2 Kings 11. Remember how, well, she was actually the daughter, wasn't she, of Ahab and Jezebel? And uh, what did she do? When uh, we read there, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. She was determined that one was not going to sit upon the throne. She killed all of the grandsons. And then a little maid, she, she hid one of the little boys, Joash. And, uh, well, when he was of age, the priest brought him out, and she cried, traitor, 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 to the priests and everybody else. 
and the priest had her slain. It's a terrible story, that wasn't it? But you can see the devil behind it all. Evil. And even the devil wouldn't relent even when Christ came. We read there in Luke 4, verse 5, And the devil, taking him up onto a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee in glory of them. Uh, Well, what did he want? He wanted worship. He's always wanted worship. Why? Because he wants to be like God. Pride. Envy of Christ. Well, here's the woman. She brings forth the man-child. But then as soon as she does... No longer, it's not long afterward, 33 years, but in those 33 years he accomplished so much, didn't he? He earned a righteousness for his people. And then just when men thought he would become an earthly king, he died in the place of his people. The good shepherd laying down his life for his people. What a blessed king we have. Well, after that, after the man-child we read is taken up, verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Again, it's the same, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. Same thing, it's just a different way of saying it. Now you notice something in the verse 7. It mentions a war in heaven, and there was a war in heaven. Now commentators aren't sure exactly when this took place. Was this before or after Christ's resurrection? I think it's difficult to tell, but we're told here that Satan was ousted out. He and all of his angels. My view is that this was before. But it's difficult to prove. But nonetheless, what is the result? He prevailed not, verse 8. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And we're told here, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Michael, a mighty angel, an archangel, possibly. And, uh, well, what was a dispute? It's difficult to say, maybe. Some suggest, well, we're told that he is the accuser of the brethren. If you just read on a little bit here, Notice, he that is called the accuser of the devil, I read from verse 9, and a great and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now he has always been called the accuser of the brethren. Remember I referred to Zechariah chapter 3, how he was there accusing Joshua the high priest in his high priestly garb that was stained. Well, If you turn to Jude 9, Jude doesn't have any chapters, it's just verses. We read 
something here. Could it be this? It's quite possible. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Now think of it. We know we've seen Moses on the mount, haven't we? There's Peter, James, and John. Moses. Maybe the idea is this. Satan accusing, how can Moses be here? He sinned. He wasn't allowed in the promised land. Or maybe even David. David's a murderer. David's a liar. Yes, but you see, Christ has power because he died for his people's sin. What does Satan do? He tempts, and then when a sinner sins, there's accusation. He knows you've broken God's law. And he knows the law very well. The wages of sin is death. Yes, but who can bring a charge, says Paul, against God's elect? For Christ has died. It may well be this. He was silenced by Michael. Christ died for all of his people. Moses, Abraham, Abraham lied, didn't he? Sarah's not my wife. Did it twice at least. All the terrible things that we've done. And how do we, how do we overcome Satan? Well, we're told in this chapter, by the blood of the Lamb. If we confess our sins, he is just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because Christ died. Satan, the accuser, what will he do to, his, to God's people? He'll say, you've sinned. Remember what Martin Luther said? He was troubled so many times. He felt Satan was there. He ended up throwing his ink pot at him. Satan was railing at him all the sins, rolling them all out. Martin Luther acknowledged his sin, but he said, you know, in effect, Christ has died for all my sin. And we overcome Satan, don't we, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. That's our hope, isn't it? Jesus Christ, he's prevailed. You know, when Satan accuses you, you can say to him, yes, and you should. Don't deny your sin. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But confess your sin. Satan hates the name of Christ. He says, you've got to, you've got to pay it off. You've got to pay off your works now. You've got to do all kinds of things. That's what the religions of this world do. And say. And now I've got to say it. We'll come up with it soon because it'll be coming up. And it concerns our confession. Rome will say you've got to do penance. You've got to carry on paying for all your sin. You've got to do this, you've got to do that, and you've got to do the other. But we say Christ died for us. Once for all. And this is it. If Michael, the archangel, contended against the devil, we can resist him too. By telling him the truth. We tell him the truth about our sin. We know that. And what a comfort it is to confess Christ. He hates that name. Well, 
This devil, he's been cast out. And then you hear a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, verse 10, is come salvation and the strength of the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. He can't accuse us anymore, can he? Christ has purged the sin. Hebrews 1.3 of all his, of his people there at the cross. The handwriting was against us has been nailed to the cross. And you notice verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. You see, these people were determined, are and are determined. My life is Christ now, the one who gave himself for me. And I love him and I serve him. Yes, my hope is in him. Well, Satan, who is his enemy? Notice verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which was brought forth, which brought forth the man-child. He won't stop. He'll continue. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and of times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Thank the Lord. He nourishes us. What's he doing tonight by his word? He's given us a place to come and to meet and to feed upon the word of Christ. This is the entire gospel age. Again, this time and half a time, this time and times and half a time, it's the three and a half again, isn't it? Same symbolism. We're not playing with numbers. It should all be there, I hope, explained for you on the sheet. If you have any questions, please do ask me. But uh, this is tremendous, isn't it? But I want to close with this. Look at Satan. And the serpent was cast out. Who is he wroth with? The dragon, verse 17, was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. That's whoever remains. Who are her seed? This is vital. If you get anything tonight, I hope you get the last verse. You want to know if you're a Christian. You want to know who are the Lord's people. Go back in your mind's eye to the previous chapter. See those in the inner court with a circumcised heart. Remember what I said about Jeremiah 31, verse 33. God's laws written upon God's people's hearts. We have a new heart. And who are they? Her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. My friend, Satan is not interested in people who don't keep his commandments. The fact that you keep his commandments shows that you love Christ. Because remember what the Lord said? If you love me, keep my commandments. Those who don't love him don't keep his commandments. Do you see that? And you notice, you you know from the close of the book of the Revelation, they that keep the commandments have the right to enter into the city. Why? Because they love Christ. I'm really tired of people saying and telling me they're Christians. But I don't see a whole lot of obedience to Christ. I don't see a desire to keep his commandments. I don't see 
a love for the Lord's Day. I don't see a love for the Sabbath. I don't see a delight in the will of God. God's people do delight in his commandments. And they'll be prepared to be persecuted for it. Satan is wroth with those who keep his commandments. He leaves people alone who aren't bothered. So those of you who are seeking to be faithful, remember, he will attack you. He will attack you. But he won't prevail. You show your love to Jesus Christ. We're told, aren't we, in Matthew's Gospel, he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. It says there that the love of the many shall wax cold. I've often said that the love that we have, what is love? It's to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. First table of the law, first four commandments. Last six commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. It is, the law is the moral essence of God's character and what he wants us to be. Isn't it? And if we're going to heaven, we'll have something of that on our hearts right now. And we love him only because he first loved us. The false church will tell you otherwise. You can pay off your sin. You can't. If Christ has paid it all, you give your all to him, don't you? Give him your life. It says there, they loved their lives not even unto death. Even, are we told, look at verse 11, they loved not their lives unto the death. They were prepared to die for Christ. I hope you and I are. The Lord help us. I know my love is poor. I'm sure you could say your love is poor. We fail, don't we? We say, Lord, please help my poor heart. Peter said that, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. And we thank the Lord if we have sinned, we can come and we can confess it. And he will strengthen us again. And then Peter could strengthen the brethren, couldn't he? Well, may the Lord strengthen us and encourage us in these things for his name's sake. Amen.